You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to Explorers. Today we wrap up our series on Mungo Park. In 1795, a Scottish explorer, Dr. Mungo Park, had set out on an epic journey to find the Niger River and the legendary city of Timbuktu. Park had overcome countless obstacles, and in the end he had found the Niger, although Timbuktu had eluded him. When he returned to England after more than two and a half years abroad, everyone had thought him dead, the latest in the line of explorers lost in the African wilderness. But Park had returned, and the public had found a new hero. Park's first task was to put his journey into words, both for his sponsor, the African Association, and the public. Park's telling of his journey to the Niger region would be released in 1799, The book was titled Travels in the Interior Districts of Africa, and it would be a hit. There would be three editions within the first year alone, and the book has never gone out of print. For many Europeans, Park had given them their first glimpse into the interior of Africa. Travels in the Interior Districts of Africa had been written with the assistance of Brian Edwards, a member of the African Association. Edwards had helped turn Park's travels into an epic adventure, one man's struggle against all odds in the most exotic and mysterious place in the world. And while Park had glossed over some of the horrors of slavery, those in the abolitionist movement welcomed his candid and honest assessment of the African people, humanizing them in the eyes of many. As I said, ultimately, it was a great hit, and the book would be the standard for future explorers putting their story into written form. In 1799, Park, at the age of 28, would marry Alison Anderson, the daughter of Dr. Thomas Anderson, who Park had apprenticed under as a teenager. The couple would have their first child the following year. In 1800, Park set up a medical practice near Selkirk, but would move to Peebles, about 20 miles away, in 1801. He and his wife's family would grow, and by 1805, there would be three boys and a girl in the Park clan. But while things seemed pretty good for Park, as we have seen with so many other explorers, the need to keep searching was in his blood. He grew bored and restless in the life of a country doctor. A friend of Park's, novelist Sir Walter Scott, later wrote that Park would, quote, Rather brave Africa and all its horrors than wear out his life in long and toilsome rides over cold and lonely heaths and gloomy hills. End quote. Park would be tempted to go off adventuring again when an offer came to lead an expedition exploring New South Wales, which is southwest Australia. His wife, however, didn't want him to go, and he would ultimately turn down the opportunity. But if Australia wasn't powerful enough to lure Park back into the saddle, Africa and the Niger was a different matter. In 1803, the African Association approached Park about leading a new expedition back to West Africa. The goal was to chart the full course of the Niger and figure out exactly where the river ended. 
Some thought that the Niger eventually hooked up with the Nile, while others speculated that it emptied into a great lake somewhere in the interior. Park came to believe that the Niger was a branch of the mighty Congo River, which flowed into the Atlantic far to the south. In fact, he would write, quote, My hopes of returning by the Congo are not altogether fanciful. End quote. No matter, finding the mouth of the river would reveal the location of the legendary Timbuktu, as well as open up the interior of the region to European merchants. It was an alluring opportunity for Park. The last time he had gone adventuring, it had been just himself, a guide, and a young slave. But this new expedition was far more ambitious. It would not just be Park heading off into Africa alone. This time, the British crown was involved. Park would have at his disposal a large force, including soldiers, well-armed and well-supplied. He would also be paid handsomely, £1,000 a year for his participation, plus there would be £5,000 to finance the expedition. It was everything he had dreamed of. Park's wife, Allison, was opposed to him going back to Africa, but the pay and the lure of the unknown was too much for the man, and Park agreed to lead the expedition. Park's orders were specifically to map the Niger as far as possible and obtain knowledge of the various kingdoms and cities on the river. The expedition would not leave Great Britain for many months, but in the interim he took the time to perfect his Arabic, since he knew he would have to deal extensively with the Moors. For the new expedition, Park would be commissioned an officer in the British Army, with the rank of captain. His second-in-command would be Alexander Anderson, his brother-in-law. Anderson would be given the rank of lieutenant. In addition to Anderson, Park would be joined by his friend, George Scott, a fellow Scotsman who was a draftsman, plus four or five artificers. An artificer was a man with some sort of skilled craft, such as a carpenter or armorer. Such men were essential to military expeditions in the field, and Park specifically brought along several carpenters as he planned to build boats to sail down the Niger. With regard to Park's soldiers, his plan was to go to Goray Island, which is off the coast of Senegal, and recruit a detachment of men from amongst the garrison. He would then proceed up the Gambia River and march overland through the Jalankadu Wilderness to the Niger, and in effect retrace the last leg of his journey almost a decade earlier. For Park, the key was reaching the Niger before the rainy season arrived. He didn't want to get caught in the middle of nowhere when his men started getting fever and dysentery. Park wanted to leave England well before the end of 1804. If he could reach Africa and set out on his journey by early 1805, he would have plenty of time to reach the Niger. Unfortunately, his official orders, as well as his funding, didn't arrive until January 2nd, 1805. Thus, he didn't sail for Africa until January 31st. Park's ocean voyage was slow going. He didn't reach Goray Island until the beginning of April. The result was that he was already months behind schedule. At Goray Island, Park set about raising a force from the garrison. He told the men of the upcoming mission and offered double pay. Plus, anyone who volunteered would not have to return to duty in Africa, a great inducement since garrison duty in tropical places like Goray Island were unhealthy. Park would get 38 volunteers, all privates except for two seamen and one officer. The officer was Lieutenant Martin of the Royal Artillery Corps. He also tried to hire some African craftsmen to join him on the journey, but he could find no takers. The expedition arrived at the town of Kei in late April 1805, not far from Pisania, where Park had set out from his journey a decade before. Park hired a local man, a Mandinka named Isaaco, as a guide. Isaaco would bring along a group of his own people, including his wife and child, as well as servants. So Park was in Africa, and his first decision would be the most critical of his life. It was nearly May. He had to decide if he should set out on his journey or wait. His first goal was to reach the city of Bamako on the Niger River. From there, he envisioned building boats and sailing down the river. 
but the rains loomed over Park's plan. The rainy season was not far off, maybe two months at the most. But attempting to reach Bamako in such a short time was a great risk. On his previous journey, he had made the trip across the African wilderness in about six weeks. But at that time, he had not been burdened by such a large force of men and pack animals. But Park decided to attempt the march, despite the fact that he must have known he was taking a tremendous gamble. If the heavy rains came before they reached Bamako, he and his men would be caught in the Jalankadu wilderness. The rivers would become swollen and the roads muddy, and even worse, the rains would bring sickness, even death. In hindsight, Park should have waited half a year, setting out in the dry season. But there was added pressure on Park because this was an official British expedition. It wasn't just him going off wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted. His superiors likely wanted results, and camping out for half a year wasn't a way to get results. Also, no doubt that Park saw the dangers of letting his men sit around idly for six or seven months. So, onward Park and his troop went. It would be a disastrous decision. On April 27, 1805, Park and his 40 or so men set out from Kei on the Gambia River. Park reported that there were 42 donkeys to carry the many supplies. They carried amber and beads and silk, gifts for the local kings and chieftains. And there were supplies for the troops, including food and muskets and gunpowder, ammunition, tools, and more. It was a far cry from the decade earlier when Park had departed with a guide and a young slave as a servant. Here he was in command of a force of soldiers and dozens of pack animals loaded with goods and supplies. Park and his men wore the standard red uniform of the British Army of the era. It would have been an amazing sight. Forty-odd white men clad in red army uniforms marching into the African interior. On the first day of travel, Park would encounter issues. The donkeys were unaccustomed to such heavy loads, and several got stuck in the muddy rice fields. His long train of men and animals got strung out and separated. Not even a day had gone by, and the challenges of Park's expedition were already presenting themselves. On April 28th, the caravan arrived at the British trading post of Pazania. They would be delayed for six days while more donkeys were procured, so that the loads wouldn't be so heavy. On a side note, Dr. John Laidley, who had aided Park on his previous journey, had left the region in 1797, but he would die on his way home to England. Anyhow, Park's caravan left Pisania on May 4th, moving forward at a slow rate. He had hoped to make 20 and 30 miles a day, but it was much less. One day the caravan only went 8 miles. One of the biggest issues was that the donkeys were proving to be difficult. Their reputation as stubborn would be fulfilled, as they would sometimes just lay down and refuse to go further or they would try and kick off their baggage. Another issue that Dog Park and his men was finding trustworthy help from the local people. Park had initially hired some Africans to assist with handling the pack animals. Unfortunately, some of these people would pilfer goods from the donkeys. Park was then forced to use his men to act as drovers, but this overburdened his troops, who had to lead the donkeys as well as their own mounts. Early on, this wasn't such a big deal, but as men became sick, it would make for some exhausting times. Speaking of sickness, on May 8th, the first serious health issue would strike the expedition when two of the soldiers were attacked by dysentery. It was a sign of things to come. Three days later, on May 11th, Park and his men arrived at the city of Medina, the capital of the Kingdom of Woolly. The king, who was not the same man that Park had dealt with a decade before, was offered gifts, including amber, beads, and coral, as well as a pair of silver pistols. But the king feigned indifference at the offer, saying it was not enough. Park would give the man more gifts, including a blanket, before it was deemed sufficient. Also, Park would give gifts to many others, including the king's sons, important officials, and even the king's chief slave. And so we begin to see a pattern. 
Park's caravan of donkeys quickly developed a reputation as being loaded with valuables, and each ruler, large and small, wanted a part of it. Up to the city of Medina, Park had essentially followed the path he had taken on his previous trip, but now he departed from that trail and went in reverse, heading east toward the Jalankadu wilderness, aiming for Bamako on the Niger River. On May 15th, Park's expedition would suffer its first fatality when a soldier, John Walters, had an epileptic fit and died an hour later. Several days later, the caravan reached the village of Tambico, in the land of Tenda, which was subject to the kingdom of Woolley. The local chieftain didn't like the gifts that Park offered him and refused to let him pass. Then Park's guide, Isaaco, was seized by the chieftain's men, robbed and tied to a tree and flogged. Park considered mounting up his men and attacking, but decided, after consulting with his officers, to wait and let things play out. Eventually, Isaaco was released and the caravan moved on. I want to point out during all of this, Park was detailing the events in a journal. As we have seen with Park, he is an observant man. His writings contain many, many details of the journey, including the names of the people and the places he encountered, the gifts he gave to the various rulers, the weather, astronomical observations, and much more. Thankfully, this journal, which covers most, but not all of his journey, has survived. This gives us an outstanding first-hand source of Park's travels. A few days later, the expedition ran into a unique situation when some of Isaaco's people went looking for honey. They ended up disturbing a massive bee's nest, and the swarm attacked the caravan. Three of the donkeys ran off, never to be found, and two others died while another couldn't continue. One horse died as well. But Park's greatest fears were just around the corner. On May 30th, he reported that, quote, some drops of rain fell, end quote. Then on June 5th, the rain would come in full force. Park described it as, quote, a squall with thunder and rain, end quote. And so the rainy season had arrived. Park's progress had been slow up to this point. He had covered maybe one quarter of the distance to Pamaku, and to top it off, he was in an easy area of travel. The more difficult terrain, the mountains and the rivers were ahead. On June 8th, one of his men, a carpenter, was so racked with dysentery, he had to be held on his horse by two soldiers. He would die later that evening. It would be the expedition's first death by sickness, but it would not be the last. On June 10th, with his men getting sicker by the day, Park wrote that the rains and sickness had struck in full force, and it was, quote, the beginning of sorrow, end quote. It is an appropriate line, for Park and his men have weeks and weeks of struggle and sickness and death ahead of them. And it wasn't just dysentery that affected the men. Fevers and illness took them. Men would vomit constantly, unable to even stand. Others would fall asleep, as if intoxicated, a form of sleeping sickness. By June 11th, a dozen men were sick. A day later, half the troop. The healthy men were not only attending to the donkeys and the horses, but to the sick. Within a few days, Park himself began to feel feverish. With his men ill and occupied, thievery became a constant problem for the expedition. The caravan of men and beasts would get drawn out, and the locals would simply take things off the donkeys and the horses if left unattended, or if the animal's keeper was delirious or had collapsed. It became commonplace for Park's men to just stop and sit under a tree, ignoring the rest of the world as they struggled to find some comfort from the fevers and pains. On June 17th, Park was forced to leave two of his men in a village they passed through, giving gifts to the local chieftain to care for the soldiers, and then bury them when they died. This sort of thing became common. Soldiers would become so weak that Park would have to leave them in the care of the locals. The hope was that they would eventually recover and catch up with the column or return to Gambia, but none of those who fell in this manner ever made it home. 
On the 23rd of June, Park wrote in his journal that a group of armed villagers had come out to meet his caravan. They had been told that the white men were sick and unable to resist, and they would be ripe for having their valuables picked clean. When one of the men tried to take a horse, one of Park's soldiers leveled his gun at the would-be thief. In short order, the British soldiers had fixed bayonets and were ready to fight, a fight that never came, as the locals were armed with only spears and bows and arrows, and they backed down. It's here that we want to talk a moment about the manner of Park's crossing. Previously, he had been alone, save for a guide and a servant. He was an object of pity, with women and slaves helping him out. But now he was a soldier, in command of armed men, with supplies and valuables. It's a stark contrast to the decade previously, when he had little value to offer would-be thieves. But this time, it was a different story. Park and his caravan had a target on their backs. That said, I do want to mention that Park and his men were on good terms with most of the people they encountered. Every day they were buying supplies, such as corn and rice and cattle from the local people. But as the caravan falls into disarray, it increasingly became a target for thieves. Also, Park is actively observing and recording the events and sights around him. He would spend the better part of one day visiting the local gold mines, recording in detail the process in which the natives extracted the precious metal from the pits. It was also around this time that Park elected to deviate from the trail he had taken in his previous journey. His new path had less of a southward deviation. The decision would put the caravan in more rugged terrain than Park had encountered the previous decade. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The rains would come and go during this time. Almost every man was sick in some fashion. Every few days, it seems, another one would die or have to be left behind. And if sickness wasn't enough, there were physical challenges posed to the troops that could prove deadly. Example, one man drowned trying to cross one of the now swollen rivers. Another growing issue was the wolves. As the caravan moved into more rugged territory, wolves would target the animals in the caravan, especially at night. There were also lions, but they didn't seem to be as common as the wolves. It was a terrible situation. Park and his detachment were slowly disintegrating. Men were dying, others were sick. The caravan was being stalked by wild animals, not to mention local bandits. 
On July 3rd, things were so bad, Park was forced to leave a man, one of the sailors who had come on the expedition, on the side of the road. Park gave the man a loaded pistol and extra cartridges. Amazingly, the sailor's fever broke that night, and he would catch up with the caravan the next day. However, he arrived completely naked, as thieves had stripped him of everything he had, including his clothes. The next day, Park's guide, Isaaco, was attacked by a crocodile, which seized his thigh while he was crossing a river. Isaaco was pulled underwater. He literally poked the crocodile in the eye as a way to get the croc to release him. But before Isaaco could get out of the river, the crocodile returned, grabbing him by the other leg and pulling him underwater again. And again, Isaaco poked the crocodile in the eye as a way to get free. He then stumbled to the shore. Park was in a dangerous situation. He didn't trust anyone but Isaaco to lead the party, but the man needed to recover from his injuries. Also, the caravan had only two days of rice left. Park elected to wait for Isaaco's injuries to heal sufficiently. In the meantime, he reported every person but one in the expedition was sick. As for food, Park sent several of Isaaco's people to a neighboring village where they managed to buy more rice. Isaaco would eventually recover, and the caravan would resume its journey on July 10th. Around this time, thievery was getting out of hand. Park said that the men were in a constant state of alert. Thieves were getting bolder and bolder by the day. And it wasn't just items taken off the pack animals. Sometimes entire donkeys would get stolen. On July 14th, a man literally snatched Park's musket out of his hands. Park jumped off his horse and gave chase, but he could not catch the man. When he returned, Park found that his greatcoat had been taken off his horse. So great was the frustration of Park and his men, they would begin to start shooting at would-be thieves. On the 18th, Park shot a man in the leg who had snatched a greatcoat off of one of the horses. Park would leave the man bleeding and unable to walk as a musket ball had shattered his leg. On July 21st, Park reported that he had left one of his men in a dying state on the side of the road. The expedition was disintegrating with every step. Before, they would have a funeral and bury their dead, or they would pay the locals to take care of the sick. But now Park was just leaving bodies where they fell. In late July, Park reported heavy rains, rains that prevented him from moving for some days. The men were getting worse and worse. On one day, four men were left along the side of the road, so sick that they refused to go any further. Park told them to catch up if they could, or take refuge in a nearby village if they could not. He would not hear from any of them again. The next few weeks were a slog. The rains were heavy, making the roads bad and the rivers overflowing. Park would have to hire the locals to lead the pack animals across the river, as his men were so weak. On August 15th, Park would reach the village of Dumbilla, where he would have a reunion with Carfatora, the man who had saved Park's life on his first journey. Park was thrilled to see his old friend, but other than that, there is nothing recorded about the meeting. Finally, on August 19th, Park and the remains of his troop reached the Niger River. He had traveled roughly 500 miles, and three-quarters of his men were dead. The trek had taken about 16 weeks, as they had struggled through the rains and the rugged terrain. A decade earlier, Park had covered the same ground in just six weeks. So let's take stock in Mungo Park and his expedition. Mr. Scott, the Scottish draftsman Park had brought from Britain, had died shortly before reaching the Niger. His officers, Anderson and Martin, were still alive, along with six of the soldiers. Of his carpenters, only one of the four had survived. Park's guide, Isaaco, along with a number of his people, were still with the company. Park loaded much of the baggage into two canoes they traded for and proceeded down the river. Most of the men walked along the banks, but Park rode in the canoe as he was suffering from dysentery. He also dispatched his guide, Isaaco, to proceed down the river to the city of Segu. Segu was the capital of the kingdom of Bambara. 
The king's name was Mansong, and he was the same king who had refused to meet with Park on his original journey. Isako's job was to negotiate safe passage for Park and his troop down the river. So with Park in the canoe and his men walking along the shore, the expedition slowly made its way towards Segu. However, having reached the Niger, it didn't stop death, as another of the soldiers would die on September 26th. On September 22nd, Isako returned with a representative from King Mansong, a man named Motobin. As with Park's previous journeys, Mansong was concerned with the motives of Park. Mungo replied that the white men were people of trade. If they could bring commerce up the Niger directly to Segu, they would cut out the middlemen and dominate the region. It would be an economic boon for the king and his people. Park also showed Motobin the many gifts Park had brought to the king, which included a silver-plated terrine, two double-barreled guns, silk, and much more. Park even showed Motobin the rest of the baggage to prove that he did not have anything more than provisions to continue down the river. Motobin pronounced Park's journey a worthy one and said that he would take his words to King Mansong. But while things seemed to be looking up, death would strike yet again two days later when two more soldiers would die, one from dysentery and the other from fever. On September 25th, Motobin returned and gave Park the go-ahead. Mansong would grant him his protection through the lands of Bambara, which extended up to Timbuktu. He also said that Mansong would provide Park with canoes to navigate the river. Park was relieved to hear the news. In addition to the gifts he had allotted for Mansong, he gave the king a violin, which had been Mr. Scott's, four muskets, three swords, and necklaces of beads. So with the protection of King Mansong, Park could safely proceed with his plans to sail down the Niger. He and his men traveled down the river past Segu to the town of San Sandin, a city of 11,000 inhabitants. Here Park waited for the boats that Mansong had promised. As he waited, he set up shop in the town's market area. After all, he had items to sell. This would allow him to acquire all the food and supplies he needed for his trip down the river. In October, Mansong would send Park several large canoes, but Park reported that they were not in good condition. So Park enlisted Private Abraham Bolton, and the two laid out plans to take the two best boats and combine them into one seaworthy craft. After working for 18 days to repair the boat, Park launched the newly christened HMS Joliba, a schooner 40 feet long and 6 feet wide. The boat was flat-bottomed, drawing only a foot of water, which would help them navigate the shallower parts of the Niger. However, the construction of the boat would coincide with one of the worst moments of the journey for Park, when on October 28th, his brother-in-law, Lieutenant Alexander Anderson, died. Anderson had been suffering from an illness for months, and his death was a terrible one for Park, as he had lost his friend and confidant. Park wrote in his journal, quote, I then felt myself as if left a second time, lonely and friendless amidst the wilds of Africa. End quote. By mid-November, the Joliba was ready to sail down the Niger. The boat and the river were the way home for Park. Park gathered his journals together, along with letters to his wife, the British colonial secretary, his patron, Sir Joseph Banks, and his father-in-law. He gave the letters and journal to his guide, Isaaco, with orders to return them to Gambia. In a letter dated November 19th, he wrote to his wife, quote, I do not intend to stop nor land anywhere. We, this morning, have done with all intercourse with the natives, end quote. To the colonial office, he wrote, quote, I shall sail for the east with a fixed resolution to discover the termination of the Niger or perish in the attempt. Though all the Europeans who are with me should die, and though I were myself half dead, I would still persevere, and if I could not succeed in the object of my journey, I would at least die on the Niger. End quote. On November 19, 1805, Mungo Park set sail on his schooner with four soldiers, including Lieutenant Martin, and three slaves. 
he would have a new guide, a man named Amadi Fatuma, as Isaac O was heading back to Gambia. Mongo Park would never be seen again, at least by any European. But we do know Mongo Park's fate, although it would take several years for it to emerge. In 1806, vague reports brought by traders began to trickle out of the interior of Africa that Park and his companions had perished. And when Park didn't miraculously appear, as he had done a decade before, people feared the worst. When conclusive evidence of Park's fate didn't surface for a few years, the British governor of Senegal hired Park's old guide, Isaaco, to go find out what exactly had happened to Park. As noted, Isaaco had left Park in San Sending on the Niger River in November of 1805. He had successfully returned to Gambia, bringing back Park's letters in his journal, the latter the primary source for this podcast up to this point. But now it was Isaaco's job to discover Park's ultimate fate. He left Senegal in January of 1810, traveling into the African interior. In September, Isaaco found Park's guide, Amida Fatuma, at the town of Fadina, near San Sanding, where Park had parted ways with Isaaco six years previously. Here is the rest of the tale, as told by Amadi to Isaaco. Park had departed San Sanding with Lieutenant Martin, three soldiers, three slaves, and Amadi, nine men in total. Park and his schooner headed downriver, passing the various towns and villages along the Niger. As noted, Park was determined to avoid encounters with the natives, so he kept to his boat, landing only to get supplies. Park's schooner, Joliba, moved quickly down the river, and things went well at first. But as they neared Timbuktu, Park and his boat became a target. At Lake Debo, about 60 or 70 miles from Timbuktu, several canoes approached in a threatening manner. One thing Park and his men did not lack was muskets. Amadi said that they had enough for 15 per man, and that included the slaves, so well over 100. Park fired on the canoes, driving them away. So this appears to have been Park's plan, to sail as quickly down the river as possible, avoid entanglements, and if threatened, use his superior firepower to drive off would-be pirates. This pattern would continue and get worse as they worked their way down the river. Boats would threaten Park, and his men would respond with gunfire. This happened at Timbuktu and many other villages. Amadi reported there were many battles with the natives and many dead people left in their wake. And it seems to have gotten bloodier and bloodier as they went. One incident involved 60 canoes chasing Park, and many natives killed as they were repulsed. Park didn't lose any of his men during this time, except for one of his soldiers, the result of sickness. The region around Timbuktu was dominated by the Moors, as well as the Tuareg tribes, the latter whom Park reportedly hated even more than the Moors. It was a toxic combination, Park's dislike for the natives and his desperate situation. He was essentially shooting his way down the Niger. Heinrich Barth, a German explorer who had reached Timbuktu roughly 50 years later, said that the locals still told the story of the Christian traveler who would fire at anyone who approached him in a threatening manner. This voyage down the river is an unfortunate legacy of Park's journey. Here was a man who had nearly reached Timbuktu a decade before without firing a single shot. Now he was blasting his way down the Niger, leaving death and bitter feelings in his wake. Alexander Lang, a Scottish explorer who, in 1826, would be the first European to enter Timbuktu, although he would be murdered by Tuareg tribesmen shortly after leaving, said that Park's explosive journey down the Niger would leave many suspicious of any white man. Some have even speculated that Lang's murder by the Tuaregs was partially in retaliation for what Park had done two decades before. Park would eventually get past the lands of the Moors and the Tuaregs, continuing down the Niger for hundreds of miles, eventually reaching the town of Yori in the lands of the Husa people. It is here that the story gets a little cloudy, but we will try and decipher what happened. At this point, Park had traveled down the river about 1,000 miles. 
He didn't know it, but he was probably about five to six hundred miles from the Atlantic. His guide, Amadi, was to depart at this point, so Park needed to prepare for the remainder of his journey. He wanted to learn a little of the language, find out what to expect down the river, and get the protection of the local rulers. To do this, he decided to offer gifts to the local chief, as well as the king of Husa. Just to clarify, these are two different people. The chief of Yori is one guy, and the king of Husa is another. Park had Amadi take all the gifts, including the king's, to the chief of Yori. Amadi gave the chief his gifts, and then gave the gifts intended for the king of Husa to the chief as well, with the understanding that those gifts would be passed along to the king. The king of Husa's gifts included five silver rings. Here we get some conflicting stories. Amadi said all seemed good. The local chief was happy with the gifts he had received, and the chief said he would give the silver rings to the king. Thus, Amadi said his goodbyes to Park and his men. Park bought supplies and was set to continue down the river. Amadi said that he spent the night in Yori, but the next morning he was confronted by two men on horseback. They said that he and Park had not given any gifts to the king, and thus insulted him. Of course, Amadi said he had given the silver rings to the local chief as gifts for the king, but that didn't seem to do anything. Either the chief had kept the rings, or the king of Husa was just creating a reason to go after Park. The men seized Amadi and threw him in prison. The king of Husa then brought forth a large force to stop Park's descent down the river. Just south of Yori are the Busa Rapids. Here, the Niger breaks into three channels. The king of Husa placed his men to guard the best passage. Seeing what was happening, Park took one of the other channels. However, his schooner would get stuck on the rocks and could not get free. The king of Husa's men swarmed over the area and began to throw spears and shoot arrows at Park and his men. In an attempt to free the Joliba from the rocks, Park and his men began to throw off anything that wasn't nailed down. When that didn't help, the situation became untenable, as the spears and arrows began to find their marks. Two of the slaves would be killed. Park and his men leapt into the river in one final, desperate attempt to escape. But it would do no good. Mongo Park and the rest of his men would drown in the rapids. The only survivor was one of the slaves, who had not abandoned the boat with the others. Amadi reported that he was held captive for three months in Yori, but he would eventually be released, and he got the story of Park's death from the slave who had survived. I do want to note that the details around Park's death are sketchy in some places. Park's death isn't really debated, but the events leading up to it are. Remember the five silver rings Amadi had given to the chief of Yuri, who in turn was to pass them on to the king? Some speculate that Amadi kept the rings for himself, and that his betrayal caused the anger of the king of Husa. Another version of the story goes that Park and his men had killed a number of people upriver, and that news had only just reached the king of the atrocity. His attack on Park was thus a retaliation for Park's actions. In the end, we can only shrug. Amadi's story is the one that is mostly stuck. The local chief may have kept the rings for himself, or perhaps he had given them to the king, as he was supposed to do, and the king just wanted an excuse to take the rest of Park's stuff. It doesn't really matter. In the end, Mungo Park, age 35, was dead, his fate confirmed by Isaco. Some of Park's effects would later be obtained, including his sword belt, but the journal of his time from San Sanding until his death was never recovered. And while Mungo Park was dead, there is a lot to say about the man and his journeys. Let's start first with his family. Sadly, Africa is going to take another Park, young Thomas Park, Mungo's second son. In 1827, Thomas Park would travel to Africa, landing on the Guinea coast. There were vague rumors that his father was still alive, captive in the interior. Thomas Park's intention was to travel inland to the lands of the Husa and find out the fate of his father. Unfortunately, he died of a fever shortly after landing in Africa. He was just 24 years old. Park's eldest son, also named Mungo, would die in India in 1828. 
Mungo had two other children, a daughter, Elizabeth, and a son, Archibald. Park's widow, Allison, would receive a 4,000-pound settlement from the African Association with the confirmation of her husband's death. She would die in 1840. Regarding the objects of Park's travels, the Niger and Timbuktu, let's start with the latter. Timbuktu would remain an elusive place for several decades. Alexander Lang, a fellow Scotsman, would be the first European to reach the city in 1826, but as noted, he would be murdered shortly after leaving the city. A Frenchman, René Callier, would be the first European to return from the city in 1828. With the arrival of Europeans, they would find the city a shadow of its former self. For over 200 years, its importance as an economic and intellectual center had been in decline. Centuries of wars and changes in rulers had slowly sapped the city of its greatness. The Niger River would, for many years, remain a mystery. The mouth of the river wouldn't be established until 1830, when two brothers, Richard and John Landers, followed the Niger from Busa, in present-day Nigeria, to the sea. No one would travel the entire length of the Niger until 1947. Yes, I did say 1947. Three Frenchmen, Juan Sauvé, Pierre Ponty, and filmmaker Jean Roche, I probably butchered all those names, set out from the source of the river in the Guinea Highlands on October 24, 1946. They walked down the river, or sailed along it in a raft, chronicling the adventure on film. The three would reach the Atlantic on March 25, 1947. We can now talk a little bit about the legacy left by Mungo Park. His name doesn't resonate today like some of those who would later explore Africa, but at the time, his travels would be an enormous influence on people, as well as governments. Park's travels really kick-started the colonial era in Central and West Africa, something you can look at as good or a bad thing. The region offered enormous economic and political opportunities, opportunities people would soon begin to exploit. Park's book about its first journey, Travels in the Interior Districts of Africa, was a hit, and it was the standard for subsequent explorers. Of all the sources for this podcast, if you want to read one, that is it. You can get it free online, along with the journal of his second expedition. I have posted a link on explorerspodcast.com. Looking at Park's travels, they are two distinct journeys, each very different than the other. What I loved about Park's first trip was the simple and humble approach to the affair. It was Park, his guide, and a servant, nothing more. And Park succeeded because of the simplicity. He was rarely seen as a threat, quite the opposite. He lived and survived with the simplest of people. And the stories he was able to tell, about the mumbo-jumbo and the woman's children singing him songs to entertain him, and about the slave that took pity on him and gave him food, those stories are so humanizing of both Park and the African people. As we have noted in the first podcast about Park, this humanization of the Africans was important to those in the abolitionist movement. Park helped people understand that the Africans were not savages, but just people. People who did not deserve the fate of slavery. On the flip side, I look at Park's second expedition and see a mix of arrogance and ignorance. The decision to set out so late in the year was reckless, and it cost many people their lives. And marching through Africa with armed British soldiers in full red army uniforms was the opposite of what he had done a decade before. It was like he was flaunting power and wealth, a foolish and dangerous thing to do considering the circumstances. And then the final leg of Park's journey would create a lasting legacy of the trigger-happy white man quick to shoot and kill, a stereotype that would endure in the region for decades, and maybe one that has never gone away. The final thing about Mungo Park was that his travels and his writings about them captured the imagination of the Western world. Men would follow him, Barth and Lang and Burton and Speak and many others. 
men who would take up the mantle of the white explorer, going forward simply for the sake of finding out what was to be found. It was an amazing thing. And the final thing I want to mention is a lasting nod to Mungo Park. The Royal Scottish Geographical Society awards the Mungo Park Medal annually in Park's honor. The medal is awarded for an outstanding contribution to geographical knowledge through exploration or adventure in potentially hazardous physical or social environments. It was awarded first in 1930. If it sounds like I cut and pasted the last paragraph off the Society's website, you would be right. Anyhow, that is it, the story of Dr. Mungo Park, the first European to reach the Niger River in West Africa. It was a great story, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.